this ever happened to you? You created a new social media company and all you wanted to do was use advertising to pay the bills, but you optimized a few AI models for giving users what they want so they stay on the product longer. They get what they like and you get more revenue from them being on the site longer. That's a win-win, right? Well, then the AI model finds out people stay online longer if they are emotionally engaged and nothing engages more than controversy. Everyone ends up hating each other now because all the AI model is serving up as the most controversial material it can find. This isn't how things are supposed to work, right? Let's make sure this doesn't happen. In today's episode, we'll be covering how to use the right metrics for your product to create a good user experience for the user. This podcast is called Design for AI. It's here to help define the space where machine learning intersects with UX, where we talk to the experts and discuss topics around designing a better AI. Music is by Roll Music. I'm your host, Mark Bailey. Let's get started. Now, I know this is probably going to be uh, one of the more technical episodes uh, that I've done so far, so I'm going to go ahead and apologize in advance, but uh, I do think this is important. In fact, it's one of the most important areas that it is really overlooked for good design is getting UX input into the creation of a model. But uh, UX can't give useful feedback unless they know what's going on, and this means some technical learning. Now, I'll make sure to cover all the meaning of the terms, and the way that I've learned a lot of the machine learning is to go over the same info twice. So the second time around, I know the terms, and it sinks in a whole lot better. So if this episode doesn't make sense, uh, maybe just go ahead and listen to it again. And if it still doesn't make sense, then go ahead and let me know what your questions are. Now, I've split this up into three different groups of metrics. So the metrics that developers, PMs, and UX are probably going to care about the most. But really, to get a good model, you want to care about all three of those groups. So let's go ahead and get started with the developer metrics. Now, for developer metrics, I've split it up into the main model types that use these different uh, metrics. So classification, regression, and ranking models. So for getting higher performance with classification models... Uh, Let's go ahead and just talk about uh, classification accuracy. So accuracy equals the number of correct predictions divided by the total number of predictions. And it's a basic metric that can be used for almost all models. Now, as the UX person, hopefully the developer you're working with, this isn't the only metric since it can give you a false sense of security. So for example, if you're looking at an anomaly that only happens 2% of the time, a model that never predicts the anomaly will have an accuracy rate of 98%. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce the first term, and that is confusion matrix. Now a better way to understand accuracy is with a confusion matrix. Now go ahead and think of it as a square with four different boxes in it. So in the top left box is true positives. This is the case where we predicted it would happen and it did happen. So this is correctly detecting some things that are actually there. The top right is the true negatives. Now this case is where we predicted something wouldn't happen and it didn't happen. This is also correctly detecting that something that is not there. The bottom left is the false positives. In this case, we were trying to predict that something was there and the actual reality is that nothing was there. This is also called a type 1 error. It's like when a doctor tells a man that he's pregnant. And the bottom right is the false negatives. These are the cases in which we predicted that there wasn't anything there and the actually was something there. This is also called a type 2 error. 
It's like when you are telling a woman that's in the middle of having a baby that she isn't pregnant. Okay, so the next term is sensitivity. Now, sensitivity matters more when you're classifying the positive detection correctly, and that's more important than classifying the negative cases. An example of this would be like when you're detecting cancer. You don't want to miss out any of the malignant tumors and have them classified as benign. So it's better to tell a few people that don't have cancer that they do, and then it is to let people that have cancer to slip through the cracks. And the consequences of any mistakes that you make are that people are going to have a bad few days and need to be retested. Uh, Now, this is seen as a much better result than people dying because they were told that they were fine when they actually did have cancer. So sensitivity measures the proportion of the actual positives that are correctly identified as positive. Now, if you want to measure a model for how sensitive the model is, then you will use the true positive rate. So this is defined by true positives divided by the false negatives plus the true positives. So the true positive rate corresponds to the proportion of the positive data points that are correctly considered as positive. And this is with respect to all the positive data points. So now go ahead and compare that with specificity. So specificity uh, matters more when classifying the negative cases correctly is more important than classifying the positive cases. So maximizing specificity is more relevant in cases like spam detection, where you strictly don't want genuine messages, that's the negative cases, to end up in the spam box, that's the positive cases. It's better for someone to read a few spam messages than it is to miss any important messages. So specificity is the proportion of actual negatives that are correctly identified as such. For example, the percentage of healthy people who are correctly identified as not having a condition. If you were looking for measuring specificity, then you'll be using the false positive rate. So this is defined as the false positives divided by the false positive plus the true negatives. Now, false positive rate corresponds to the proportion of negative data points that are mistakenly considered as positive with respect to all the negative data points. So an improvement that you might want to try over the simplified accuracy model is called decreasing the logarithmic loss. It works by penalizing the false classifications. So you want to start by finding the probability of each group in your data so that if you have, say, uh, minimizing log loss, it's to give you greater accuracy for the model used for the actual classification. The next term we want to talk about is called receiver operating characteristics, and this is usually called the ROC curve. So the receiver operating characteristic, or the ROC curve, is a curve that develops from the true positive rate versus the false positive rate at the different classification thresholds. Now, if that doesn't make any sense, uh, so what you want to think of is that basically it's mapping out a line between when the model is getting it right and when the model is getting it wrong. So the ROC curve are probably the most commonly used for uh, measure when you're evaluating the predictive performance of scoring classifiers. Now this metric is best used for evaluating accuracy for uh, classification models, uh, regression models, and clustering models. 
So the thing that you need to think about when this is used as a metric is the way that you tweak the ROC curve is by lowering the classification threshold. So this classifies more items as positive. Thus, you're going to increase both the false positives and the true positives. So it's a way to move back and forth as needed depending on which is more important. And the only way that you'll know that is from the uh, user interviews. The next term is called the area under the curve, or it's usually called the AUC. Now the AUC is a hard thing to wrap your mind around. The technical definition for the AUC is the probability that a classifier will be more confident than a randomly chosen positive example is actually positive than that of a randomly chosen and negative example shows up as positive. So now, an easier way to look at this is basically if you map out the ROC curve on a graph, the area under the curve is an accurate prediction. If you can map it out perfectly, the AUC number is equal to 1. As you're mapping the curve, it gets worse. Uh, the AUC number becomes a fraction instead of 1. So AUC provides an aggregate measurement of the performance across all possible classifications thresholds, so it's good for getting the big picture type information on the model. Because it is big picture information, uh, things like scale of granularity and the classification thresholds don't matter. So one of the big problems with using an AUC as a metric is that the scale invariance is not always desirable. For example, sometimes you really do uh, need well-calibrated probability outputs, and AUC won't tell you about that. Also, the classification threshold invariance is not always desirable. In cases where there are wide disparities in the cost of a false negative or a false positive, it may be critical to minimize one type of classification error. For example, when you're doing email spam detection, you likely want to prioritize minimizing false positive. Um, that's even if your results are going to be a significant increase in the number of false negatives. So the AUC is not useful for a metric for that type of optimization. All right, so next, let's go ahead and talk about improving the F1 score. Okay, so to describe an F1 score, we need to cover some new vocabulary. Now, we've already covered uh, sensitivity and specificity. Now we're going to go ahead and add precision and recall. So for a refresher, specificity is given a negative example. What's the probability that you'll have a negative test result? And the easiest one to remember is that sensitivity is the same thing as recall. I don't really know why they needed two words to explain the same thing, but either word means given a positive result, what is the probability that is a positive test result? Now, precision is the opposite of recall. Given a positive test result, what is the probability that it was a positive result? So the F1 score is used to measure a test accuracy. Uh, the F1 score is the average uh, the harmonic mean, to be more specific, uh, between the precision and the recall. So the range for an F1 score is usually between 0 and 1. It tells you how precise your classifier is, uh, how many instances it classifies something correctly. Now, as well as how robust it is, it doesn't miss a significant number of instances. Now, high precision but low recall gives you an extremely accurate but it then misses a large number of instances that are difficult to classify. So the greater the F1 score, the better it is the, for the performance of your model. 
All right, so now let's go ahead and talk about performance metrics for regression models. And so there's two different things here, the mean absolute error and the mean squared error. So now the mean absolute error is the average distance between the original values and the predicted values. It gives uh, you a measure of how far the predictions were from the actual output. However, they don't give you any idea of the direction of the error. So for example, whether you were under predicting data or you were over predicting the data. Now the mean squared error is quite similar to the mean absolute error. The only difference is, is that the mean squared error takes the average of the square of the difference between the original value and the predicted value. So the advantage of the mean squared error being that it's easier to compute the gradient, whereas the mean absolute error requires complicated linear programming tools to compute the gradient. Now, as we've seen with for the square of the error, the effect of the larger error becomes more pronounced than smaller ones. So you want to make sure that the model can now focus more on the larger errors. All right, so now for the metrics for uh, models that do ranking, we have uh, also again here two different kinds. We have the best predicted versus human, and then we also have the Kindle-Tau coefficient. So to start with the best prediction versus human, uh, this is also shortened down to BPH. Um, so the most relevant item that is taken from an algorithm-generated ranking, and then you compare that to human-generated ranking. And this metric results in the comparison that shows the difference in estimation between the algorithm and what the human wants. So the problem with using this method is basically that humans are in the cycle. Um, a lot of the time, people are going to be using Mechanical Turk for getting the human rankings, or they'll be using internal employee. Uh, I can pretty much guarantee that the people working for Mechanical Turk are not your target audience, and basically neither are your coworkers. So if you are the UX person, make sure that the people from the target audience are the people that are ranking the choices, and that it's not just uh, one of the developers on the team that's already familiar with which answers are possible. So now, uh, if you're comparing the whole rank list instead of just the top item, then that's where the Kindle's tau coefficient shows the correlation between the two lists of ranked items based on the number of similar and dissimilar pairs when you compare them against each other. Uh, in each case, we have two ranks, the machine and the human prediction. So firstly, the ranked items are turned into a uh, pair comparison matrix with the correlation being the current rank and of the others. Now a concordant pair means that an algorithm rank correlates with the human rank. Otherwise, this is gonna be concordant, or in this case, a dissimilar pair. Okay, so those are all the developer metrics. So let's go ahead and move on to the business matrix. So these are the things that PMs need to worry about. Since most of the models are built in a research setting, the developers have the most say into the metrics being used on judging if the model is, quote, good. Now, as machine learning, uh, it, as it matures more and more processes mature, so will the business metrics. Until that time, here's what I've seen being used by PMs that I've worked with at different companies. So feel free to let me know if there's others that you have used. So the metrics that I'll be covering here are model adaptability, faster iterations, smaller, more efficient models, and the ability to productize the model. So let's start with model adaptability. 
So once the model is created, there's a good chance that it can be used for more than just what its original purpose. Now I've previously talked about the data ladder. Um, so just as a re refresher, uh, basically the better a model is, it leads to new info that it's able to collect. And then that leads to the next better model. And then from there, it just goes back and forth. So, you know, a better model it leads to more data that can be collected and more data collected can leads to a better model. And so each one of these is just the new rung on the ladder until you get to your ultimate goal of the whole reason why you started creating the model in the first place. So that's the ladder and it should be part of your plan for which models need to be created to get those new data sources. So this model is to rank your model structure based on how adaptable it is, not just to the current step in the ladder, but how useful this model will be for future rungs of the ladder. Basically, will it improve with added data streams or is it a model for kind of a one-off that will only work for the current rung at the current time? So you want to be favoring models that are adaptable that will help you climb the ladder faster and get ahead of the competition. The next metric is being able to create faster iterations. So how fast you can put out a new minor version of your model or how long does it take you to create a new major version? Models that can be turned around faster can be improved faster. Faster improvements means more accuracy and more frequent user testing. So the better alignment to what your customers want. The next metric is smaller, more efficient models. So it's amazing how accurate models can get currently with our technology, given enough data and enough hardware power. The problem being that cruft can start to build up just like any other software. So smaller models require less hardware for training and serving, and since machine learning hardware is pretty much all cutting edge, it's expensive to use as compared to other cloud services. So this is a cost-saving metric, but reducing complexity also helps create faster iterations, and it also creates a better user experience, which I'll talk about soon. The next metric is productizing the model. Now, since machine learning is mainly research, uh, the majority of models created never see the light of day, and this is another problem with building up cruft in the model. Optimizing models for production helps keep the development cycle lean. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the UX metrics. Now, just as a warning, creating a good user experience is uh, pretty much, I think, long-term. So be careful with the metrics that you implement. The law of unintended consequences can be harsh with AI models. Most developers will optimize their models for some form of accuracy or precision, and to lower chances of unintended consequences, make sure that you add these UX metrics. Uh, the ones that I'll be talking about are customer happiness, fairness, model regression tests, and faster iteration times. So first, customer happiness. Now, customer happiness will help for long-term customers. Choosing between long-term or short-term customer satisfaction matters on the cost of two items for your company. So you need to compare the customer acquisition cost, or the CAC, and also the customer lifetime value, or the CLV. The higher both of these numbers are, the more important it is to focus on long-term customer happiness. And this also means uh, that you want the customer to have smaller perceived changes for the user, and so that's also going to affect the models. Now the second uh, 
metric is fairness. So fairness is an important metric. I've linked the metric from Open Data Science article in the show notes. So first, uh, disparate impact. Uh, This is the ratio of the fraction of positive predictions for both groups. So members of each group should be selected at the same rate. And then the performance difference ratio uh, is the calculation of all the standard performance metrics like false positive rates, accuracy, precision, or recall, Um, You want to make sure that's equal opportunity for the privileged and the unprivileged groups separately and see if there's a difference uh, between the ratio and those values. The third one is the entropy-based metric. And the generalized entropy for each group, you want to calculate separately and then you want to compare them. This method can be used to measure fairness not only from a group level, but also from an individual level. So the most commonly used flavor of a generalized entropy is the Thiel index. Uh, Originally, that was used to measure income equality. So which one should you be choosing? Well, be empathetic for what your users think and how they would measure fairness, and then you want to find the metric that reflects that. Okay, so the next metric is model regression testing. So with so much um, about building models being right now is that it's research-based, uh, code bases usually don't last that long. And the problem is that once uh, it is time to move on to the next version, it's just as likely that the developers are going to start over with a new code base to try out new ideas. Uh, the problem with that is that anything that you've previously solved can easily creep back into the new code base all in the search for a new, better accuracy. So this metric helps to keep the team constantly keep track of all the previous problems that they've solved, how they were solved, and to make sure that that is merged into the code base for any new ideas so that old problems don't need to be solved again. Otherwise, it's pretty much you're trying to provide a good user experience on constantly shifting ground because you're never quite sure what this model was optimized for and what bugs have crept back into it. All right, so the next metric is faster iteration times. Now, I covered this one for the business metric, but this is also a very big deal for better uh, user experience. The reality is that a faster model can iterate the more times that it can be tested with users. And the more tests that you can do with users helps with feedback on what the users want. Now, models that can be iterated fast can also uh, test new ideas faster, and rapid prototyping helps in testing more ideas. So anyone that has done user tests knows how easy it is to get completely unexpected answers from the user tests. And so the ability to quickly pivot helps to be able to align with what the users want the most. And on that note, what metrics have you caused unintended consequences with for the models that you've helped build? Have you found any metrics that have helped create better models? Uh, That's all the time we have for in this episode, but I would love to hear back from you on which metrics you use for your models. So go ahead and use your phone to record a voice memo, then email it to podcast at designforai.com. And this is also an awesome way to let me know what you like and what you would like to hear more of. Or if you just have questions or comments, record the message for those two. If you would like to see what I'm up to, you can find me on Twitter at Design for AI. So thank you again, and remember, with how powerful AI is, let's design it to be usable for everyone. Thank you. <laughs>